He is one of the top 1% of realtors worldwide, voted top 30th in America by the Wall Street Journal. Welcome back to another episode of All or Nothing in Real Estate. I am your host, Matt Smith. Guys, I have an amazing episode for you today. I am interviewing one of my mentors, one of my friends. Um, actually, the very first training course I ever took was from this guy. Today, we have a very special guest, Joshua Smith. Josh, what's up, man? Hey, man. I'm excited to be here, dude. This is going to be a lot of fun, brother. Yeah, I'm excited. So those of you that don't know who Joshua Smith is, um, he is one of the top top 1% of realtors worldwide, voted top 30th in America by the Wall Street Journal. He hosts the real estate podcast, GSD Mode, and is co-owner of his real estate software company called Perfect Storm, along with many other companies like healthcare, supplements, health and fitness, and so many more. But most importantly, he's a caring husband and proud father to three wonderful children. Josh, dude, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, no, like I said, man, I'm honored. This is going to be a lot of fun, brother. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's dive in. Let's just start with, um, tell the tell the people a little bit of who you are, where you come from, how did you get up in real estate? What is GSD mode? A little bit of your story. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I've been in this industry since 2005. Um, when I was 23 years old, I was just, you know, I was... I I I, want, I was I grew up in the health club industry. You know, my father owned and operated gyms for 30 years. It's it's what I thought I wanted to do with my whole life. Um, and then my my dad actually sold. He had an opportunity to sell his gyms right when I graduated high school, and um, so he you know went into semi retirement mode, if you will. And uh, but I stayed in the gym industry and and kept going down that path. But when I was 23 years old, I just hit that realization of like, dude, for me to be able to go out there and provide the opportunities I want to provide for my future family and to hit the financial goals that I had, I was like, dude, I got to get into ownership, bro. Like, you know, it, management, especially in that industry, you know, there just wasn't a lot of money. And 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 when I say a lot of money, I mean, you could be making, you know, some, you know, low level six figures, you know, but that, that was about it. So, you know, but then I'm looking at this, I'm 23 years old, college dropout. You know, I have really nothing to my name because at that time in my life, I was, I was spending money as fast as I was making it. And uh, it was going to cost about $800,000 for me to open up my, the facility I wanted to open up. And I couldn't get any, you know, I couldn't get a loan, couldn't get an investor, which I don't blame them. I wouldn't invest in me or give me a loan at, at that point uh, uh, either. So I was like, dude, I need to go out there and raise some capital. So this is 2005. I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. And Phoenix, Arizona is one of these boom bust markets, you know? Um, so at that time, man, you know, the market was on fire. 2005, that, those of you that weren't in the market at that time is very similar to 2020, 2021. So from an outsider looking in, you know, I was like, dude, everybody I know in real estate is just murdering it. At least that was my perception, right? So and I'm like, hey, man, I love people. I love sales. And I love, I'm a workhorse. I love to work my ass off. Um, so I'm like, I'll just jump into real estate go out there, raise the capital that I need to open up my health club. Thought it might be a three, four year thing. Um, but I always say that, man, once I jumped into real estate, real estate quickly became my obsession and health and fitness came, became my passion. Now I still have some you know businesses in the health and fitness space, but, but never jumped back into the health, actually the health club space. Um, but yeah, then jumped in, man, hit the ground running, dude, you know, did 48 deals my first year, not, not quite as many as you did your first year, but you know, um, but 2005, man, and not to, to make, uh, uh, an excuse as to why I didn't do, you know, more, but it, it was a different world, man. Like there was no DocuSign, there was no smartphones, you know, um, um, you know, it took, took, took a little bit longer to get deals done, you know, but what that taught me though, very quickly was about capacities. And, and luckily I had a lot of experience in the health club industry building sales teams, you know, so I would go out and start new facilities from scratch. Like what, like as the, the 
health club is being even under construction, you know, I'd start off in the trailer, pre-selling memberships, you know, you get to a certain membership count, then you bring on your first admin, you know, and then, then you get to another certain membership count, and then you bring on another salesperson, you know, and then, and then eventually replace yourself where you're then, you know, then I'd become the sales manager. And I, I did that for multiple different locations. So I had experience um, as a W2 employee building sales teams for other people, you know, cause in 2005, man, it was like teams weren't really a common thing in this industry. And also I know I'm kind of dating and aging myself, but there was no YouTube, there was no podcast, like, you know, the information just wasn't as readily available. So I had to just go based off my experience, but I'm like, dude, I want to double my business the next year, but I'm like, man, I'm at a capacity. I mean, at that time I was working from my office every day at 5am, usually there till eight, 9pm every single day, working seven days a week. I'm like, dude, there's no way I can double my business unless I get some help. So I hired my first assistant that brought me from 48 deals to 103 deals and a year number two that brought me to another capacity, you know, where, where it got to the point where I was three weeks booked out from being able to meet with clients. I was losing clients. So that's when I started building up the sales team that then scale us up to, you know, just over 300 units, my third year. Um, so I've been operating a team since 2006 and, and now through that journey, I've sold over 7,000 homes. And here we are today. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah, it's it's crazy how similar um, a lot of successful people in this business start, right? They just, they get the work and put in the work that is necessary, find success, and then keep growing from there. Um, so I think you said a couple of words that caught my, caught my attention, capacity. Um, what is, for those, of, those that are listening that don't understand what you mean by that, can you break that down? What do you mean when you hit capacity? So, so I look at it, I think about it as a glass ceiling, like, you know, it's like, no, eventually you're going to hit this glass ceiling. Meaning there's only so many hours and time in a day. There's only so much mental energy, physical energy that we can exhaust. So eventually you're going to hit a capacity, which means your max workload, you know, right? Like the, the maximum amount of volume that you can go out there and do. And it's different for everybody, man. I meet individual agents that their capacity is 60. I've seen some that their capacity is higher than that. You know, for me, it was 48, you know, right. Um, and, and look at, at that time I didn't, I was, I was good at sales, but always been good at sales. You know, and like I said, I love people. I love working hard, but I didn't really get in the concept of systems and processes and the power of those until I got into, until the market crashed and I got heavy into REO, you know, cause at that point now we're handling, you know, 300 plus listings for the banks. Like you had to become really systems driven to be able to handle that volume, you know? So, so I was just trying to solve my own capacity issues, you know, with, with just hard work. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, it just means that like your volume, volume workload and, and you need some help and you got to start delegating out these tasks. And you know, I found that there, there's, there's two ways and, and really only two ways to, to increase your capacity. Number one is through systems, right? So, so, you know, putting in the right systems, and when I say systems, I mean systems and processes, right? So processes are the step-by-step -step actions that we take to get the result that we want. Systems are where the, those processes live to ensure that those things are done the same way each and every single time. And we get that result, things aren't missed, you know, and so forth. Um, um, so, you know, having the right systems in place. Um, and then from there, it's people, you know, then, then we got to eventually start plugging people in. So then they can start, uh, uh, you know, doing, you know, conducting those processes, that live in the systems that, that, you know, we provide for them to continue to scale. Yeah. hundred percent. So, um, a lot of people, when they hit that capacity, um, they get stuck, right? Whether you're um, a single agent that gets stuck at your capacity of what you can do, whether you're a team leader that is, Hey, I'm stuck at capacity. I'm still selling top producer on my team and I'm running a team. How do I get out of production? 
or you get stuck at, say you're a 20 agent team and you want to get to 40. Like we all reach those glass ceilings. They exist at so many different barriers in this business, no matter where you are. Um, I think that a lot of people, what I've learned through the years is success. When you hit your capacity, success isn't always about addition. Sometimes it's about subtraction. And so something that's helped me when I hit capacity is I do an exercise of what can I get rid of? Not what can I add? Because I'm a workhorse. I know you're a workhorse. We have that work ethic, but it's sometimes you need to do less so you can focus on higher priority things. And it's about subtracting things that aren't serving you and your purpose with those systems, with those processes, with those people to create leverage so you can continue to grow and break through that ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. And I a hundred percent agree with that. I mean, it, it's um, a lot of people that are watching us and this probably have heard of Grant Cardone. And my first conversation with Grant Cardone was about eight years ago. And so this was before, like he was, you know, this, like he was very rich and very successful, but nobody knew, knew of him. This is right when he started to come in, you know, before he was, you know, hitting social media hard. And so he was a keynote speaker at um, uh, an event, a real estate event up in Vegas that my buddy Alex Sharfin was putting on called Breakthrough. And uh, so like he was out there like setting up his, his books and, and I, I recognized him from the flyer because he was a keynote speaker. So I had an opportunity, like he was out there setting up, nobody was around him. I, I went up, just you know, introduced myself, started talking to him. Um, and I'm like, dude, you know, at that time, I just won any hours 30 under 30. I just got, you know, voted 30 top agent in, in the U.S. by the Wall Street Journal. I think I was you know, 29 at this time. Um, um, no, I was about 30. Um, um, so maybe it was 10 years ago because I'm 40 now. So um, but anyway. You know, I, I, he's asking me a lot about my goals, what I want. I'm like, yeah, so I'm telling him, but I'm like, man, I'm, I'm just missing something. Like there's just something I'm not doing, something I'm missing that's not getting me to that next level. And he goes, everybody thinks that. He goes, everybody thinks that they need to be adding something, but success is almost always an elimination, not an addition. You need to always be asking yourself what or whom is prohibiting me from taking those necessary action steps. So then that way I can make those goals a reality. So yeah, so much of success is an elimination. You know, you got to make sure, and this is something I practice daily. Every single day I go through my planning, but I also go through a reflection exercise that takes about 20 minutes, but I'm breaking down everything that I went through that day. And the first question I'm asking myself in that reflection is what got on my calendar? What got my attention? What got on my schedule that is not getting me one step closer to the goal that I have, you know, to making that a reality. So then I can learn from it, can grow from it to cut that out. Cause there's just so much wasted shit that can come up in our lives, you know, and that could come from people, from conversations, from, you know, just wasted activities. And this is where tracking some becomes so important in, inside of our businesses as well. Cause you know, like, like dude, the, the, the language of money, is numbers. And I know that most in our industry hate numbers, hate tracking, you know, but again, the language of money is numbers and we are all here to make money. At the end of the day, people can talk about anything that they want to talk about, why they got into real estate. But at the end of the day, like it all boils down to money. Um, yeah. And it might provide the lifestyle and so forth too, but it's providing you that lifestyle, but also at the same time, allowing you to make X amount of dollars while providing that lifestyle. Right. So it comes down to money, you know? So, so if you don't know your data, if you don't know the details inside your business, like you're going to fail at this. And then when I say fail, it doesn't mean they're going to drop out of this industry, but you're, you're going to have an insane amount of resistance and you're going to have an insane, uh, uh, you know, time trying to grow and scale. If you don't know, cause the only way to make smart strategic decisions inside our business is to be able to track that data and know what to scale up, what to scale down, what to cut, what to amplify and so forth. Yeah. And you can only find those holes so you can plug them by tracking. Right. Um, yeah. I think I learned this from you years ago without a system or a process, the default is chaos. 
Yep. And we have enough chaos in this business with systems, with processes. And so um, I've, I've taken that and I've revamped that into, I work on purpose versus on accident. Like I, so many people talk about budget with money. You mentioned money, right? So many people budget their money, but how many people truly budget their time? In reality, time, anybody that's a top performer in life will tell you time is way more valuable than money, but we focus on budgeting our money and we don't pay attention to what we are doing with our time. And so if you create a budget for your time, meaning plan your day in advance, I love the exercise afterwards, a reflection exercise, and you can really dissect your time to become productive versus busy. Those are two completely separate things. Most real estate agents are busy, but very few are actually productive. Yep. Yep. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, dude, it's when it comes down to time. And and again, this goes with my reflection uh, um, portion. So I I spent 20 minutes is last thing that I do with my business day. And when I say business day, meaning I end my business day, then I might have some family time after that. Um, but the last thing that I do each and every day is first I reflect on, on, okay, what did I do over the last 24 hours? How productive was I? What were, cause I'm not trying to get through the day. I'm trying to get from it. So what were the learning moments? What were the growth lessons? I have some, you know, deep reflection questions in there. Like, Hey, if my wife and kids were a fly on the wall and shadowed me all day long, would they be proud of my performance or disappointed? You know, if I were to replace myself with the CEO and the CEO did exactly what I did today, would I be pleased or disappointed with their performance? Like meaning would I fire my own ass? Right. You know, so I have some, you know, kind of deeper reflection questions in there, but then from there, once I've gotten from the day, and I've reflected, then I go through and I plan out my next 24 hours, right? So this is the day before. So, and I learned this from one of my mentors, Darren Hardy, which is you never enter a day without having it first fully committed to paper first. So I know then from the second I wake up till the second I go to bed, everything that must happen in the next 24 hour period of my life for that day to be a win. And I'm never focused on the next week or the next month. Doesn't mean that I don't set yearly goals and, you know, I have, but man, I'm just hyper-focused on all I got to do is when I say 24 hours, okay, maybe I'm sleeping seven or eight hours. So then it's like, okay, I got this, you know, 16 or 17 hours to execute on. I'm just hyper-focused on, on, um, you know, maximizing those 16 hours, you know, that, that 16 hours and getting as much as I can out of it. And I actually have a 24 hour calendar. I printed out and it's broken down by 15 minute increments. Um, so then it's not just, you know, when I talk about everything being on my calendar, it's not just appointments and so forth. It's every single task I need to do that day broken down into 15 minute increments. You know, that way, then it's all committed to a calendar. I can stay on task, but then it also allows it very easily for that reflection element. You know, okay, what was productive? What wasn't productive? You know, and then the things that you are productive on and that, that don't get eliminated, the elimination is the easy part, you know, right? Then from there, when I'm doing that reflection, I'm looking at, okay, everything that, that each individual activity that I got involved in, okay, is there anything that I can do to make this more effective and efficient? And I think of, of you know, in pennies and in seconds, you know, because so many people are like, um, oh, dude, it just takes a couple minutes. Well, if every little thing just takes a couple minutes, you calculate that up, dude, over time, I've done these exercises, where that's years out of your life compounded yeah. over time. So just like simple shit, like as an example, I went through and I had this, you know, cause I got multiple offices for all my different businesses and all those different multiple office buildings have multiple, you know, offices inside there. So I had this, you know, just huge fucking keychain with all these different keys. And I was like, one day I'm sitting there, I'm like, man, how much time am I spending just finding which key goes into each door? So I went and I called my locksmith immediately, you know, cause I, I'm like, dude, this is, this is taking, you know, I mean, seconds that add to minutes, minutes that add to hours. So I called my locksmith. I'm like, I want every key in my life. The only ones I couldn't do were my car and my mailbox. But I'm like, I want everything rekeyed to a master key that I can have 
So I only have one key to access everything in my life, you know, right outside of my mailbox. I guess it's illegal. We couldn't do it for the car because of the complication, but you know, just little things like that. And, and people don't, you know, people are just focused on the big shit, man. Like they're looking right. at big, you know, but it's the little things, dude. It's the little things that matter, man. It's, it's, I heard a saying one time, um, you know, speaker asked everybody in the audience, he's like, has anybody in here bit, been bitten by an elephant? Nobody raised their hand. And then he goes, has anybody in here been bitten by a mosquito? Everybody raised their hands. And he's like, see, it's the little things in life that bite you. So it's paying attention to those little things, do the, the little details, all of that stuff rolls up, adds up and makes a big difference. You know, one of the issues that a lot of people have is when you look at success, and I'm just, I just use Jim Rohn's definition is success is just, you know, small, tiny decisions and choices that we make each day, all throughout the day, each and every day that compound over time that turn into a success. And then failure is just the opposite, small errors in judgment all throughout the day, each and every day that compound over time, you know, but the difficult part is those tiny, small decisions made all throughout those moments day by day seem so insignificant in the moment. However, over time, as they compound, they become the only thing of significance that matters. You know, it's like when you go out to lunch, man, did you eat the double bacon cheeseburger and then have the soda or did you eat the chill, you know, kale chicken salad and have the water, you know, like it's going to make a difference. That habit compounded over time over the next 20 years of your life. That's what makes or breaks you. Yeah, dude. And so many people were probably listening to that key example that you said and being like, well, this guy's crazy, right? Like that's too extreme. I would never do that. And I would just challenge you if you're listening and you have that limited mindset to go back and listen to that part again, because it's those little things over time that make all the difference in the world. We can all do the big shit, right? But what about the little things and the micro commitments? What leverage are you creating in your life? Because think about it, this perspective. So the key example is a great example, but I use this for when I coach real estate agents and for growing a team. Like if your system or process wastes 30 seconds for each file or for each employee, how many employees do you plan on having over the next five years? How many contracts are you going to have over the next five years? Add that up. How much time is that? And what is your average pay per salary? Like, what do you pay per hour for your employees? That's how much this one 30 second mistake is costing you. Like you have to think about those things to create those systems and process to become more efficient and become productive with your life. And it's so, so crucial. People understand that. And you also said you plan your day in advance. I've, I actually did a whole episode on this. Go back to the all or nothing podcast. It's called the power list. I learned that from one of my mentors, Andy Frisella. It is a simple five daily tasks, critical tasks that you need to get done each and every day. If you get those five critical tasks done, you have won the day. Yes, you can do more. We have a to-do list that's probably got 38 things on it. But which of those five are most critical that you have to get done today? And then when you cross them off, you get that hit of dopamine, that adrenaline, because you got to win and you put a big W on top of the page. And if you, I'm telling you, those five things, if you do that each and every day for 90 days and look back, your life will completely have transformed because you kept the commitments to yourself. It's the little things that matter. Yep. 100% man. Can't agree more, dude. You know, I mean, I don't know what else to add to it, but it's, uh, uh, you know, but, yeah. but the, I mean, here's the thing is, is, and this is why I love this industry, dude, and really just business in general. It's not just, you know, narrow down to our industry, but you guys, I mean, it's so easy just to go out there and dominate. It's like fishing with dynamite. Cause most are, aren't just not committed. They're just not going to do this stuff. I mean, it's, I mean, there's a reason why, you know, 7% of the industry makes 93% of the income, you know, but I'll tell you, it's, it, you know, when I'm, I'm hanging out with that 7%, you know, um, uh, you know, the, those conversations are vastly different than when I'm hanging out with the 93%. Yeah, dude, that's crazy. 7% makes 93% of the income. That's nuts. Yep. Um, Hey, so you talked about in your journey in real estate, um, let's jump back to your story. So you said from year one to year two, you doubled your business. 
for the people out there, let's give them some, something actionable. Like I believe in action steps. And so there's a lot of things that went into that, I'm sure. But if you had to pick one that was the most crucial lever for you to make that jump to double your business, what was that one thing? Well, I mean, it, 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 and there's two things that come into this, but the, the primary thing was the delegation, right? Um, you know, because I hired a full-time admin that freed up 40 hours of my week, essentially, to go out there and and focus on money making activities. You, you doubled know, um, your time, right? You yeah, doubled your time yeah, with one yeah. hire. Yeah. I mean, well, and I was already working 80 hours a week or more. So, you know, um, uh, but it, it bought me back another 40 hours a week, you know, but then from there, um, and this is where circling back to the tracking element, why it becomes so important is you got to be able to know where to allocate your time and your energy, you know, like, okay, if we're looking at like real estate agents, there's only three ways that we make money, which is setting appointments, conducting appointments, negotiating contracts, you know, so when it comes to setting appointments, that's going to be your lead gen, your lead follow-up, you know, conducting appointments, obviously your listing and, and buyer presentation and then negotiating contracts that comes into, you know, putting those deals together and which, which also includes, of course, you know, showing homes and so forth. Um, but I just started allocating those things. And, and my, my mentor at the time, my brokerage owner, you know, he, and he had a very successful team, which is why I joined his brokerage because I wanted to be able to learn from him. You know, he was like, okay, I want you to go through and write down everything on, on, and he just had me go get these big three M sticky notes at the time, you know? So he's like, I want you to plaster this wall over here with your money-making activities that you need to do everything else. Just plaster that over on this wall. They're going to delegate off to this admin. Um, um, so then we could, you know, clearly define roles and, and figure out how to allocate, you know, each other's times, you know, um, and look at, at that time, I didn't have enough production to keep like each one of my transaction coordinators on my team right now, you know, is an example, their capacity is about 30 closings per month, you know, um, I didn't have that amount of volume to keep them busy, which is those activities, you know, so, so with this, my first admin, it was anything and everything that I was involved with that was not those three money-making activities. And this is something I've always done because you go through these different phases, you know, um, but I'm always asking my own self of what, what are the three most important uses of my time at this stage that I'm in with my business, right? Because at the end of the day, the, the, the goal of all the people that you bring around you, all your, your staff, agents, and so forth is to allow you to be focused on those three things. You know, so like right now, today, for me, it's it's marketing, it's content creation um, and overall strategy. Right. So those are the only three things I focus my time. Everybody else I hired, all my organizations, yeah, they have their roles, they have their responsibilities, but all of those exist. The primary objective for all of those people is to allow me to focus on those three things. So I'm not getting pulled away from those three things, which are the highest and best use of my time. Dude, that's that's gold. Um, I'm taking notes myself. I need to do that exercise. Um, yep. That's that's amazing, man. Um, and you you mentioned too putting that plan your day in advance, right? Like it, it, everything goes on your calendar. I remember people used to um, give me grief for it, right? Like in my organization, my own wife. Well, I have to put it on your calendar when the girls' basketball games are. Yeah, you sure do. That way, I don't miss it, right? Because that's how I live my life. I plan it in advance, and so I've even. Um, I don't believe in work-life balance, but I even plan all of that stuff is on my calendar, right? It's a life calendar is here's what I'm going to do. And that's what I follow. I tell my time what I'm going to do before I do it. I have family time every single night. I have all these things that are important to me that are in my calendar so that I follow a schedule and everyone knows where I'm at, why I'm going to be there and what's important to me. It's so, so crucial, especially in this business that will squirrel you to death. There's so many shiny objects that can take you off the task you know you need to do. 
Yep. Yeah. hundred percent, man. Live and die by your calendar, dude. It's, it's, uh, you know, there's one habit for anybody to gain, you know, and I'm the same way like you dude. It's like time I wake up is on there workouts, meals, like every little thing is mm-hmm. on there. Yeah. It, it, dude, it makes, it makes it's people call it obsessive or overdoing it. But, uh, um, I mean, people like you, if you look at your growth and success path, there's, that's one of the main reasons for it. Right. And so if that's what it takes to be successful, then I'm all in, you know, um, yeah, and when so, people, when people say obsessed, you know, it, it's like, that's kind of become this negative term in society, but show me one person that's ever created success in any field, any, whether it be athletics, whether it be music, whether it be business that wasn't obsessed, you know, like you need to be obsessed. Yeah. So, so if that sounds obsessive, if anything sounds obsessive, that's what you need to be doing. Like you need to be obsessed, right? Like you're, if you're not obsessed, I don't know how you create success. Dude, that's so true. Um, I tell people all the time, it's like, I've got such an addictive personality. It's a good thing. I never like tried drugs, right? Cause who knows where I'd be, but I'm addicted to whatever I'm in. I'm all in. That's where this brand came from. It's, it's all or nothing. If I'm doing it, I'm jumping in with both feet. Right. And so I love your spin on obsession though. Like that's a, you should be obsessed when somebody says, Oh, that's too obsessive. Take that as a compliment because that's how you do create that success, dude. That's gold. So let's fast forward in your journey, man. Um, what does your team look like today? Yeah. So team today is um, we've got, uh, I got two full-time transaction coordinators, full-time listing coordinator. I've got my you know, office manager. She, she really runs the team. Um, and then we have about 50 full-time agents on the team today. I stepped out of production about eight years ago. So, um, and, and, you know, and when I say, so I stepped out of production about eight years ago and then about six years ago, I stepped out of operations, you know, so, um, my real estate team, which I'm still involved with, you know, a few hours a week, but it, it's minimum my time. And that was always my goal, man. It was, and I think this becomes really important. Um, uh, and I know I'm kind of going on a sidetrack here, but I, I want to point hit on this point. Cause I do think it's so crucial dude is, you know, to, to have clarity on what you want out of this business long-term, man, like, like business is a vehicle that allows you to go out there and, and create and live the life that you want to live. And the reason why I love this industry, and I'm so obsessed with this industry is not because like, I'm just, you know, it's not one of these things like, Oh man, I just love working with buyers. I love working with sellers. There's nothing like, no, dude, it's not about that. I mean, there's, don't get me wrong. There's, there was times and seasons of my life where I love doing those things. And then there was times and seasons where I no longer love doing those things, you know, but why I'm obsessed with this industry is I've never seen another industry that creates so much and allows for so much opportunity where you can get a 23 year old young punk kid college dropout like me that, you know, went from zero to making, you know, as much as attorneys and dockers within about six months. Like I've, I've just never seen, and I've been involved in so many different businesses, so many different industries. I've never seen anything that, that is matched, you know, to real estate, but you got to know what that looks like. Like, what, what do you, you know, what's your exit strategy? You know, what, what, what do you want your business to be in 20 years, 10 years, five years, three years, you know? So for me, I always wanted to create a business and, and, you know, I grew up in an entrepreneur family. So, you know, uh, I guess I, so that was something that always attracted me with it, but then I had to define, well, what do I mean by that? You know, cause it, according to the IRS, you can be a solo agent and you're a business owner, right? Well, I looked at that and how I defined it is a business is, you know, when I don't have a business until I've created this machine that allows me to step away where I can disappear for the next six months and it's operating without my involvement. You know, it doesn't need, it might need some of my involvement to continue to grow and expand, but you know, I, I can disappear to Hawaii for the next six months and everything. You know, People are still being agents are being recruited, onboarded, trained, production still happening, commission checks are still happening. You know, so that was always my my intent and my goal. Um, you know, with that. So um, um, and that's what, you know, it, about six years ago, you know, so it took me 
about 11 years to, to fully create that. Um, I think it would have been quicker if we didn't, if it wasn't for 2008 through 2012, you know, because I was on that track before the great financial crisis hit, which was the worst housing market crash in recorded history here in the United States. And, and at that time in my market to really go out there and continue to, to, to thrive, dude, it was like, you had to get these REO accounts. I mean, it got to the point where like 80, 90% of the business I was either REO or short sales. Well, these asset managers would only deal with me. They didn't want to be delegated out. So, you know, I kind of got sucked back in heavy into production sure. at that time, you know, working with those asset managers. Um, but that that's where, you know, my business is at today. Awesome, man. So I want to talk about, I'm going to jump back to 2008 in just a second. I want to, I want to dive deep on this new market. I want your opinion since you've been through it before um, or something similar before and a, a major adjustment before. So you said build the purpose. So this is my quote. Um, it's very similar to yours is the purpose of business is to fund a great life, right? So it's, we have one life, live it. And so make sure you have a clarity and build a life by design. Like Josh's goal was to do what he's doing now to get out of the business. What is your goal with your business? And I did a business business planning exercise with my entire team. I did a webinar on it. And like half of the whole webinar, half of the, the time we spent was planning our life first, not our business. We can KPI people to death, but we don't spend enough time going deep with self on what do we want? Why do we want it? Why is it important to us? And what does that look like? Extreme clarity on what is important to us in our life. I think a lot of people miss that part. And then they just get stuck in the hamster wheel of life and they're just going through the motions. It's so important you take the time and pause and have those reflections and take deep, take deep inventory of your life. What don't you like? What do you want to change? What do you want that to look like? Who do you want to be there with? What What do you want your business to look like? What do you want your family to look like? Your relationships and go deep and visualize what that is and then go create it. That's the purpose of business. Yeah. We just don't spend enough time on that part. Um, but do jumping ahead. Let's jump. Let's jump back to 2008. You've been through the 2008 um, financial crisis um, and came out stronger on the other end. So this market we're in right now, um, it is it is adjusting, normalizing, changing, whatever word you want to use. We're going through a lot in our real estate market. I know your market, we've dis we discussed priors getting hit a lot more than like mine is as an example. But what is your opinion of what this market is doing right now? And what is it going to look like? Yeah, yeah. So um, and, and before I get into that, you know, I just want you guys to know during down markets, one, one of my mentors used to always tell me that good agents and great agents will make more money in down markets than in, in you know, up markets than in good markets, right? So more money in bad markets and good markets. And it never made sense to me until I experienced the worst housing market in recorded history, which were by far my most profitable years. You know, now, now today we might do more overall revenue, more gross commissions, you know, and so forth. But on a net on net standpoint, from a production standpoint, those are my most profitable years, man. Um, so with that being said, now I want to preface that because you got to under there's massive opportunities regardless of the, with the market. So I don't. And the reason why I want to say that is because I don't want anybody to get scared with what I'm about to say, you know, um, um, and don't let it get you down because like get excited about this shit. I'm excited about this. So then from there, if we look at this stage where we're at right now, um, uh, and when it comes to what's going to happen, nobody has crystal ball. Nobody knows for sure. And it's, it's at the end of the day, there's so much that is contingent based on the amount of manipulation 
that that happens behind the scenes. Like meaning if the Federal Reserve keeps on the track that they're on right now, or do they pivot, um, um, you know, get back end down to a low interest rate environment, which I know federal overnight fund rate has very little to do directly with mortgage rates, but it still impacts them, you know? Um, uh, so, so anyway, though, if they continue down the path that they're going right now, so if you wind the clocks to 2007, right? So if we look at 2007 till today, right, we have been experiencing since then about a 1% year over year decline in GDP growth as a country. So that's all been made up by federal reserve and, and, you know, the federal government through just stimulus monetization of debt, you know, quantitative easing and so forth. So we've had this artificial economy for the last 15 plus years to the point where if that manipulation wasn't taking place, we'd be in a 15 year long depression right now. And that's where I believe that we are heading right now. I believe that we are going to go into a deep, deep, dark global recession, if not a global depression. Um, and this is, this could be and this is what I'm planning for. I'm not saying it's going to necessarily happen because I, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, but I am planning on this being the worst economic crash and the worst real estate crash to ever take place in recorded history. And and it, it, when, but I find that if you hope for the best plan for the worst, it's the best hedge that we can have for our overall business. Because look, if worst case doesn't happen, but I'm prepped and planned for it, I'm good to go. But if it does happen, I'm also good to go, right? So I'm not going to allow myself to be naive, be naive and be like, oh, Oh, this thing isn't going to, you know, go down or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, all right, so, but why do I think that if we look at, at where we're at right now, if you look at debt right now, we're in the biggest debt bubble that we've ever seen on magnitudes of, of scale of a size that's never been experienced in global history. You got about $300 trillion of on, on balance sheet government debt alone, right? Um, but on a global scale, not just the US scale. And one of the big differences between 08 and now is 08 was a US problem that the rest of the world felt. When you have the biggest economy in the world that goes into a deep recession, yeah, the rest of the world's gonna feel that. Now, this is a global issue where the rest of the world is actually in a worse off position. As bad as our issues are here in the US, the rest of the world is in a much worse off position. So this is a global issue that we are all experiencing at the same time. I mean, China is getting murdered. If you look at the three biggest economies in the world right now, they are all getting absolutely murdered. You know, And, and what you see right now in mainstream media is just a smokescreen to cover up of how bad shit is because people really knew how bad things are right now they'd be absolutely fucking panicking and freaking out you know so so we got the biggest debt bubble of all time that just can't can't be and when i say debt bubble not just government debt when you look at corporate debt when you look at consumer debt the average consumer today is in a way worse off position than they were before leading into 2008 so okay biggest debt bubble of all time then we got we're coming off of right now the biggest all asset class bubble of all time real estate included in that you know, then we, we stack on top of that, this inflation issue and this inflation issue is not going away. I mean, what, I mean, this is going to be a long, long term issue. Everything that the Federal Reserve right now is doing, all they can do is try to crush demand, which is what they're doing right now. They're trying to crush demand. So they're trying to intentionally increase unemployment and put us into a recession, but they can't go out there and control the supply side. So when you look at cost of energy, cost of food, the necessities of life, Right. Like this inflation problem is going to be a problem for a long time. So it's just a matter of time before people have to start making that decision. Do I put food on the table for my kids or do I make my mortgage payment? And they're going to pick 
feeding their family, right? Um, then if you look at like the auto industry right now, so a lot, like the, the the debate I always hear on why this market is in a crash is usually around, well, man, we don't have the subprime loan you know, issues that we have. We're not doing those ninja loans that we used to do and so forth, right? Well, that's been happening in other sectors, right? And it's, it happened very heavily over the last three years in the auto loan sector. So if you look at the, like the auto loans already in free fall collapse right now, the auto industry in free fall collapse, right? To the point right now where there's 15,000 daily repos, auto repos taking place here in the United States to the point where the banks aren't taking those to auction because when they take them at auction, some auction, they have to realize that loss on their balance sheet and they are freaked out that that's going to set them into a liquidity crisis, right? Now, liquidity crisis is what then melted down 2008, you know? So then, um, um, then when we look at unemployment, you know, we get fed uh, and this is why, you know, I, I recommend nobody watch the news because it's all utter bullshit, you know, um, but we get fed this. Oh, well, well, they look at the payroll reports. Oh, well, unemployment or you know, employment still strong. Right. So but they, they only look at payroll um, employment reports. So when you compare that, though, to the household um, um, employment surveys, there's over a two million job discrepancy between those two. Right now. Now, the household surveys are the that's the true employment numbers that we really need to pay attention to, because what the payrolls when they talk about unemployment are um, employment today. Payrolls are OK. If, if I get laid off, because right now what we're seeing is, is the white collar you know, mass white collar layoffs, you know, right? So if you're going out there, maybe you're making 150 grand for this organization and you get laid off right now. Well, in order to go out there and, and float your family and get your family by, you might have to go get three other jobs, right? Three part-time jobs, driving, you know, whatever. Well, that now counts as three. It went from one payroll now to three. So it's an illusion. It's so, so like, and then we look at this. I mean, look at, like, like look at Amazon, right? So Amazon is the first company in history to lose over a trillion dollars in valuation. And they've lost over a trillion dollars in valuation just this year alone. Now, if you would have asked me three years ago, um, like what, what company is recession proof? I would have said Amazon, you know, I'm like, okay, like things are hella cheap. People don't have to drive to the store. They're saving gas, whatever. Dude, they've already had a trillion dollar hit, a trillion dollar loss already. Like Amazon alone is going to have to lay off over a million people alone. You know, so um, and we're just starting to see the beginning of mass layoffs, which is is in the, in alignment with recessionary timeframes. If you look at layoffs tend to happen about five to six months into a recession, you know, so, um, uh, you know, unemployment going up. Um, and then we also, in addition to that, have the highest are uh, uh, the lowest, I should say, job participation rate that we've ever seen in this country right now. Just meaning people just aren't wanting to work, don't want to work for whatever reason, you know, whatever that may be. I mean, it's only like 59% of, of, of Americans that are, you know, of working age actually have jobs, right? Um, so when you calculate that, when in a, one of the sites I go to is, is um, uh, shit, I'll have to think of um, shadow stats. So what shadow stats does is they go calculate CPI and unemployment based on how they historically were calculated. So during the Clinton administration, they they went and changed the models on how they how they calculate inflation and how they calculate unemployment. So if we go back, but like right now, like CPI is an example, it, it gets compared to also oh, the you know the highest inflation that we've seen in 40 years. Well, the only way you can really truly make that statement is to calculate those numbers in the same way they were calculated back in the 70s. So if we look at this, you know, that 70s, that kind of decade stagflationary time, high inflation and, and low economic growth or, or no economic growth, you know, that decade period, um, if we calculate them the same ways right now, inflation today would be 16.4%. 
And I'm guessing for all of you, it probably feels like life is getting about 16% more expensive year over year than 8% right now. You know, unemployment right now, according to shadow stats, is about 24%, just over 24%. So we have the greatest unemployment rate that we've seen since the Great Depression. You know, um, um, you know, so we start looking at that. We look at ongoing increased interest rates. And with interest rates on the mortgage side, just so you guys know right now, now we've seen interest rates take a dip down. Here's what's happening right now. Is so interest rates are set ba based on mortgage-backed security purchases. So you got Wall Street going out there. They take all these loans, they bundle up, they sell them on Wall Street and the bond market, which is which is the debt market, right? Um, so it's mortgage-backed security purchases and what those daily bids are on those mortgage-backed securities that set today's interest rates, right? Um, well, when you have mortgage-backed securities directly compete with the U.S. Treasury market. So why they started going up so fast is, well, there's two reasons. Number one, through COVID, and the reason why interest rates were so low during COVID is you had the Federal Reserve buying $90 billion of mortgage-backed securities on a monthly basis. And you got to understand that the Federal Reserve can't make a profit. Any profit that they, they make, they have to turn over to the Treasury at the end of the year. So they can, so they'll, they'll buy shit that nobody else will buy at rates. Nobody else will buy it because they, they, they can't make, they're not making a profit anyway. You know, so you went, we went from, you know, the Federal Reserve buying $90 billion a month, and that stopped at the beginning of 2022, right? And that's why we started to see a half a percent increase month over month throughout the first six months of this year, even before the Federal Reserve started increasing the overnight fund rate, right? That's why we, we were seeing mortgage rates just going up at, at, at record, not that mortgage rates haven't been higher than this, but the, the rate that they were increasing was at record highs, you know? Um, and um, But then what you have going on right now, because of the global debt issue that's taking place, um, you're looking at like a Japan as an example. Japan is now forced in a position because the US dollar globally is so much stronger than their currency, they're being forced to sell off their US treasury bonds at record rates. And you have this happening all over the EU as well, you know, um, you know, to the point right now, because those need to get resold. So then the Treasury Department is having to offer those Treasury bonds at higher and higher interest rates to get them lucrative enough for people to buy them, you know, um, but then that takes away purchases from mortgage backed securities. Right. Um, uh, so, you know, because if I can go buy a, a, a two year Treasury bond and make five percent, I'm never going to go buy a mortgage backed security because that's essentially risk free money for my investment. You know, so it's to the point, though, right now, where even though the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department is sitting there saying, oh, we're, we're not going to be practicing quantitative easing, we're practicing quantitative tightening, they are buying right now, they're managing the yield curve. So even what we're seeing going on with interest rates right now, this is artificial, right? If we didn't have the manipulation right now with the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department practicing this yield curve control, uh, yield curve control, we would probably have mortgage rates of 9%. So I won't be shocked at all if, you know, interest rates go up to 10% this next year. I mean, I don't know what they're going to be. It, again, like I said earlier, so much of this is contingent on, on all this back-end manipulation that's taking place, you know, um, but if they let us go and see what true market bottom is, yeah, I think that this thing is going to get nasty and ugly because we haven't seen a true market bottom, you know, since 07. We've just had this massive manipulation, you know, taking place. So, um, and I could go on this for hours. I mean, we talk about, you know, um, what's going on with China's economy. We talk about, you know, what's going on with Ukraine and Russia, you know, all of this stuff. Like, it, we're, we're in a bad spot, dude. I, I, I can't find a time in history. I'm a huge history buff. I love history. Uh, where, where, our economy has been this volatile, you know? Um, um, and dude, you start looking at this, it's like real estate. If you look at nationwide last year and real estate is very hyper local. So when I'm saying these things, you know, what happens here in Phoenix might be different in Matt's market in Missouri or, you know, wherever it might be, you know, if you're in Alabama or some of these markets, you may not be hit as hard, you know? Um, 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 
but uh, uh, you know, you, you start looking at okay, nationwide. Last year, your average first-time buyer was 37 years old. Like that's just not healthy, dude. Like I, I think you know, overall, this thing needs to crash just for the health of uh, you know the longevity of of health for our economy. It needs to crash and crash hard. And I get people are going to have to go through some pain with this, you know, um, uh, to do that. But at the end of the day, it's just, do you want your dollar to be worth more? Do you want it to be worth less, man? Do you want the first, you know, the American dream to become, you know, I've got three kids, you know, like at, at this rate, what they're going to have to wait till they're 40 or 50 to buy the first house, you know? Um, uh, so, and then when you, you start factoring the stock market, we got the worst performing stock market in 50 years. we got the worst performing bond market in the last 250 years right now. And this is just like, you, you got the, the administration right now um, saying that we're, things are good. They're saying that we're not even in a recession yet. So if shit's this ugly and we haven't even, you know, got into the storm yet, how ugly it is it going to get? So, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, I easily see the real estate market, um, uh, correcting. I think it needs to correct. You know, if you look at the historic trend line of real estate over the last hundred years and you adjust it for inflation, you know, um, dude, it, it, I mean, we need to come back down to like 2012 prices, you know, um, it's gotten so out of control. Now, I don't know if that will happen, but but I think here in like Phoenix, as example, our median sales price right now is about 450. I think we'll come back down to about median prices 250. Yeah. And so, um, uh, so a lot of people, you said a correction, right? Um, a lot of people yeah. mistake that word. Like a correction is healthy, right? Like that, the corrections happen. Like it's normal. What has happened the past 15-ish years is not normal. Right. For it to be that long of a run. And then you had the COVID, the pandemic where it just spiked. Right. So it's got to um, correct. But I want to talk about a little bit more on that and then we'll move on. Um, the back end manipulation that is happening and has happened. Dude, um, I, I, I that was great information you just give. But this is just just a question that I have after um, absorbing all that information is. What's going to stop them from continuing that manipulation and taking it to another level to keep this continuing, especially well, for their administration to look better in the public's eyes? Yeah. So so when you look at this, right, um, and, and this is nothing new, you know, I mean, all 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 this manipulation. So, you know, quantitative easing, if you will, money printing is is just defacing currency. Well, the Romans did that, you know, I mean, like every civilization, there's been over 500 uh, essentially fiat currencies. Prior to the U.S. dollar, they've all suffered the same fate. You know, those in power can't can't control the 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 you know the printing press, and they all suffer the same fate. And 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 you know, this could be. It wouldn't surprise me if this doesn't end up being the collapse of of our current financial system altogether, and something new needs to be reborn. You know, um, uh, we'll see where that goes. But um, uh, but you can only deface currency for so long you know, before, before it becomes, you know, an issue. So, um, yeah, I mean, they, they easily could kick the can down the road. That's just going to create a bigger problem, you yeah. know? So, um, and it, you know, so then that's why I said earlier is it's all contingent on that, you know, um, because if they come in, let's just say they come in tomorrow and, and lower interest rates back down to zero, um, because what that really impacts more than anything else is these institutional investors that are swallowing up real estate. You know, because when you look at like so many people think like, you know, the, the Black Rocks of the world are paying cash for these properties. They're actually not paying cash. You know, they have a direct line, let's just say, with the Federal Reserve. So they might be paying point, you know, zero five or point five percent interest rates to that. You know, so but even then during during, you know, 2020, 2021, like BlackRock, as an example, their average cap rate was like three and a half percent. So if you look at but these are floating rates. 
right? So, so as every time the, the Federal Reserve increases that rate, that then it's not like those rates were locked. So their cap rates are gone, right? So that also, you know, it, it makes me think of too, like, you know, what again, there's, these are all possibilities that this could happen, but at what point do these institutions need to start unloading massive property? And does that become like, you know, another, you know, a version of, of what we saw in 08 with REO, you yeah. know, these foreclosures, you know, just waves of, of floods of institute. And, and we've already seen that in, in the, you know, the commercial, you know, multi-units and so forth, you know, they're, I mean, they're having to dump and look, you know, your Goldman Sachs and your Black Rocks, you know, a lot of these, they're, they're, they're in a position where they have to go out there and unload a lot of this, this inventory. So yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, I don't, you know, um, I, but at some point, you know, um, it, 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 if they continue doing it, you can only deface your currency for so long before we become Weimar journey. And we're seeing that right now, you know, right. You're seeing this with, with inflation, you're seeing this, you know, you can only print money. Like you print the more money that exists in a system, the more that, you know, M1 money supply is increased, the less that money is worth. Right. And then that leads to inflation. So if they keep doing this, you know, um, um, does that get us to a point of hyperinflation? We've seen this over and like, look at Weimar Germany. You know, and and what was that in the early you know in the twenties? You know, it's exactly what took place there. Um, and it probably will happen. You know, right? Uh, uh, like I said, there's been 500 fiat currencies prior to the U.S. dollar. Um, they all suffered the same fate. So, um, you know, hopefully we can hold on for a little bit longer, and they do the right thing and and stay on the path that they're on right now with with quantitative tightening and with keeping the interest rates high. Um, uh, so then that way we can find true market bottom, what the markets do, what the markets are supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, dude, that's great info. Um, I've got, I've got a couple more minutes before we got to wrap this up, but I want to, I want to get some action items on dude. Again, that was gold. That was great information. Um, uh, if somebody that's listening to this, if, and was like, Holy cow, they're deflated now, right? Like I'm, I'm in this real estate industry. And if this market does all of these things, like how do I survive? How do I take this and look at this through the lens of opportunity? And so what would you tell to those people? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so first thing, you know, Matt, you, you said, you know, a correction. So there's a difference between a correction and a crash. A crash is just a correction. That's beyond 20%. That's the only difference. So, so if you look at my market, my market's already crashed. You know, we're already down about 20% today. And then when you adjust inflation into that, it's beyond that. So technically we've already crashed, you know, um, and there's there's multiple different ways that this could go. Let's just say we continue inflation continues going up eight percent year over year, like we repeat what happened in the seventies. Um, but then let's just say you know we go back to what they may have changed their stance on this. But you know at least uh, last time I checked, you had like Zillow and Redfin. Um, their predictions of the market that it would slow down and we go back to more of like a 3% year over year appreciation for some time. So it would just cool down, right? So just kind of be a healthy appreciation. Well, if you have 8% inflation for the next 10 years and 3% real estate appreciation for the next 10 years, that is a 50% real estate market correction over that same year, 10 year span. You know, so both can go up and still have a correction at the same. So there's a lot of different ways this can play out. But then from there, you know, going to your point of, of you know, if anybody's feeling deflated by that, and, and I don't, and that's why I said it in the beginning, there's a lot of opportunities So don't get, you know, um, uh, because 
you know, I'm not, my intent isn't to scare anybody, but for me, if somebody's going to be punched, you know, coming to punch me in the face, I want to know about it so I can swipe, you know, <laughs> sidestep and get out of the way. Right. So, you know, looking at all of this though, it's the, the deep understanding and knowing that there is no such thing as a good market or a bad market. The market is always good for somebody. It's our job as real estate professionals to identify whom the market is good for pivot, shift, adapt accordingly. And our business continues to grow. Right. So throughout my whole entire career, the, I've, I've been here in Phoenix, Arizona, I've worked the same cities, the same zip codes, you know, the, the primarily same neighborhoods. Yeah, there's new neighborhoods popping up, but but you get my point there. Now, the one constant has been the real estate itself has always been uh, trading hands. Real estate always has traded hands, always will. So there's always a buyer and seller. What has shifted is who the market again is good for. That times in my career where it's traditional, you know, traditional business. I've had times where it's, you know, a lot of hedge funds. I've had times where it's REO or short sales or so forth. So you need to get really good at identifying who is the current market good for. So once you identify who it's good for, so just breaking down, okay, who's buying, who's selling, why are they buying, why are they selling, where are they coming from, where are they going, you know, what product are they buying or selling, you know, what what geographic locations within my market are they buying and selling, you know, right, that, that identifies, so that then becomes your ideal client for that market, right? So then from there, and this is just my five-step lead generation strategy framework. So identify, you know, okay, who that market's good for, that becomes my ideal client. Then from there, I break down what their demographics are. So the demographics are just the stats, you know, okay, they're, you know, 28 to 45-year-old married couples, two kids at home that are high school age or younger, making $100,000 to $300,000 a year. You know, the demographics, just the stats, right? That gives you who, now, now you know you're who you're targeting, right? So then from there, we figure out um, what's known as psychographics in the marketing world. So the psychographics are just think of pain and pleasure, right? Like everybody in real estate, we'll speak to real estate specifically here. They have, they have a, a pain, they're experiencing a current pain with the current living situation for whatever that may be. They have a pleasure that they want to get to, right? So they want to go from point A to point B, right? So, the, but the, the, but the, there's something that's blocking them because the great thing about real estate is we don't have to sell real estate. People are already sold on real estate. Like they already want a home. They already need to sell. Like they're, they're already sold on it. What we sell, what we do is we need to articulate that we're the best guide to get them from where they're at to where they want to go. Right? So then the more that we, we understand, you know, what that pain and that pleasure is. And then on top of that, what is blocking them from taking action? Like, what is that thing? You know, and this is why I love getting objections. I know so many people hate objections, but man, I love getting them because that's them disclosing to me what that block is, right? Then I go to the drawing board. I figure what that is. So like right now for us, like we're targeting buyers right now, like my, my team, we are only targeting buyers. Not that we're not listing properties, you know, right now, but any listings that we get are, you know, past clients, favorite. like as far as marketing dollars and intentionality, it's going after buyer clients because buyers are in control in our market. Um, well, then from there, it's like, yeah, we, I mean, it, it, the three times the amount of inventory, so they don't have to settle for a home right now. You know, that same house is a hundred thousand dollars less today than it was if they bought it a year ago. They're not competing. It's just so the best time that we've seen to buy in the last three plus years. However, because interest rates are up, that's the block. Even though that same house is $100,000 less today with interest rates, the mortgage payment is 500 bucks more. So we had to go figure out how to, how to overcome that problem, right? So then we started, you know, working with our lender partners, seeing what we could get for, from a concession standpoint. Okay, well, if you have a 20% down conventional buyer, they can get to 9% seller concessions. Okay, well, what type of a seller right now is desperate enough uh, motivated enough to offer 9% seller concessions. So for us, that was new builds. We got new builds and I buyers, right? Now we have some, you know, regular sellers as well, but you know, that's a little bit more difficult because it's seller by seller, but we're like, okay, I buyers make up 11% of our listing inventory right now, but only 3% of our sales in our market. New builds have like 12 months worth of inventory in our market. So we're like, if anybody's want to play ball and that, that is desperate and motivated to go out there and sell right now and offer our clients, not only 
a house that's pr- priced well for today's market. But in addition to offer 9% seller concessions, right? That way we can use two or 3% of those for, for, you know, closing costs that gives us five to 6% for that rate buy down, right? Then now we've solved that interest rate issue. So number two is the psychographic. So get to know that block, get to know that pain point, right? Number three is you then need to identify where they congregate. So where are they hanging out? Where are they at? Where are they at offline? Where are they at online? Right. Um, so, you know, Perry Marshall is uh, one of his books. And I always share this, this, because even though it's an extreme example, because it articulates the point, well, he's like, look, if I'm selling Bibles, I'm probably not going to go to strip clubs to sell those Bibles because, you know, the buyer of that, my, my dear clients probably not hanging out at a strip club. Like you got to make sure that you are, your message is showing up where your ideal clients are at. So we look at, identify where they, where they congregate. And then the last element, the fifth point is your strengths. How do you want to do business? Right. So like for me, I hate cold calls. I don't like cold calls. I don't like door knocking. I like inbound marketing. I like people coming to me. That is my strength. It's what, how I enjoy doing business, how I want to do my business. Right. So then we start breaking this down and putting this together. You know, the ideal uh, the demographic is who we're targeting. The psychographics, those pain points, and those obstacles we we're talking about, that shows us what our message is going to be. Then as far as where they congregate, that's where our message shows up. And then based on our strengths, that's how our message is then delivered. So now I know who I'm targeting, what my message is going to be, where my message is showing up, and how that message is being delivered. We put those together, then boom, you know, right? That becomes my lead generation strategy. But you got like- yeah, you just got to understand your market and where that is. 2020, 2021 is very different. You know, yep. our ideal client at that point was upsizers, you know, but we had to solve the problem because nobody would accept the contingency. So we had to get investors to come in and buy their house, buy the house for them, you know, right? So they yeah. could go out there and, and get that, but it it worked flawlessly and allowed us to continue to grow in any single market. And you can have times where, again, it might be hedge funds, it might be REO, it might be short sales, it might be whatever it is. You know, you follow that framework and it allows you then to make sure that you are targeting the right people. Yeah. And you got to be able to adjust and pivot quickly. Right. Um, so dude, that's, that's a great framework. Hey, I got to wrap it up here. Um, I've got uh, another call to get to, but dude, I appreciate you coming on here. Um, appreciate you pouring the value. Um, guys, you guys need to follow Josh, Josh, where, where do you want them to send them to, to follow you? Cause to get some more of this great information. Yeah. If you go to gsdmode.com, uh, that's my website. You can check out my podcast. I'm links to all my podcasts on there. I've got a bunch of free resources, free training on there as well. Um, YouTube, Joshua Smith, GSD, all my social, uh, uh, handles are Joshua Smith GSD. So you can, I'm not on Instagram a whole lot, but Instagram, Facebook, all of those, but yeah, gsdmode.com is, is kind of the best central place. Awesome guys. Like I told you, this man right here is responsible for a lot of my success journey. The very first training that I ever took, I still use some of the resources and lessons I learned from him years ago. Um, as you can tell, he's very knowledgeable in this industry, a great guy that's always given back. So go check out gsdmo.com. Hit up Joshua. He's here to help and give back. And man, thank you so much for, for being here and sharing your knowledge. Appreciate you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, my friend. Thanks. Thanks guys for listening. We'll catch you next time. 